your infinite majestic glory, the praise and the, 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 the beauty of your people, and that one day we will be there. One day that will be our reality. We are a part of that through regeneration and union with Christ, the indwelling of the Spirit, the promises of your word, but one day it'll be the reality that we live in and exist in all of the fullness that you have designed for us to experience according to your grace in Christ. And so keep us encouraged and faithful until that great and wonderful and blessed day when we give you all that we are and we, with full hearts, with no hindrance, express our praise and worship to you. And even now as we look at the, our topic this morning, transgenderism, uh, we pray, Lord, that you would help us to think clearly, uh, to have, remember to have hearts of compassion for those who have not experienced your redeeming grace and have no resources within themselves to combat the effects of the fall in all of its various ways. So help us, Lord, again, as we look at this topic, to look at it again with clarity, but also with hope and the message of the gospel of grace in Christ, which is our central message. And we pray this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, I want to thank uh, Tim uh, first for taking us through Joseph. I always just enjoy those tracks back uh, through the Old Testament, and particularly the life of Joseph, and uh, looking at God's character displayed and his faithfulness to his promises and and all of the ways that he brought those insights to us. So I'm very thankful for that ministry. And as we now move back into eventually our look at the book of Revelation, uh, it seemed to me uh, that it would be good to take a little bit of time uh, to consider a few other topics. And one of those topics this morning that I want to consider is the issue of transgenderism, the issue of transgenderism. That, of course, is something that we are familiar with, at least in terms of the word, uh, because we're inundated with it all of the time in a variety of ways. Now, we understand that sexual confusion and corruption and perversion have always been a dominant evidence or manifestation of our fallenness, of our perversion, of the brokenness of humanity, of the corruption of our hearts under sin. And in our current time, however, this isn't expressed in what is, could really honestly be described as something unique in certain ways among human history. And that is the issue, of course, of transgenderism, which is captured in this statement. I am a woman trapped in a man's body, or vice versa. Now, in terms of culture, this was catapulted to national attention with the very public so-called transition of the famous Olympian we're all very well familiar with, more than we want to be, of Bruce Jenner, who now identifies as Caitlyn Jenner. She described, or he described, this transformation in a 2015 Twitter post as this, I'm so happy after such a long struggle to be living my true self. Welcome to the world, Caitlin. Can't wait for you to get to know her slash me. That really brought it from something that was sort of in the back burner or in the background out to the front of national attention as this so-called transformation 
of Bruce Jenner was celebrated amid media uh, and culture, really across the culture, uh, across the board. In terms of politics and law, the agenda of transgenderism became very personal to families across the nation in 2016 with the bathroom mandate, which essentially legislated that those who have biological anatomy of one sex can go into the bathroom of those who are biologically the other sex. And that, of course, set up many, many battles that were to come and many, many uncomfortable situations. Now, where did this come from? Where did this idea come from? Well, my goal here is to give a general overview of the history of transgenderism, some of the key tenets of transgenderism, its threats to the culture, uh, and then some hope at the end. And so hopefully we can cover all of that. I certainly want to cover what I can in one message. So let's consider these things. What is the general history of transgenderism? Where did it come from? Where did it start in, in, in terms of its uh, present form? Now, the current ideology and, and language related to transgenderism really goes back, believe it or not, into the late 1800s and early 1900s, originating, it, it could largely be argued anyway, with a German psychologist by the name of Magnus Hirschfeld. And he stated, among other things, the human is not man or woman, but rather man and woman. Now, this, of course, comes out of, and we're not going to go into the details of that, but his debauched life and his debauched practices in many, in many different forms. But nonetheless, he uh, championed this idea of gender or masculine, male and female existing on a spectrum, not, not really being two distinct categories. He published in 1910 a book called The Transvestites in which he sought to distinguish this behavior, basically the cross-dressing of men to dress like women, from transsexualism. And in 1923, he actually coined the word transsexual, which, one notes, he described as the adoption of the gender role opposite to a person's birth sex, arguing that such people hold an unswerving conviction that they are assigned to an incorrect sex, end quote. It was under his leadership that the first attempt at GRS, or gender reassignment surgery, was performed, and it did not go well. Later, there's another figure by the name of Harry Benjamin. He also, a German descent, but he was a German-American endocrinologist who was considered, actually, the founding father of contemporary Western transsexualism. Now, he categorized three types of sexual confusion. The third was what is now known as transgenderism. And he described it in this way. He lives of the transgender person. He lives only for the day when his quote-unquote female soul is no longer being outraged by his male body. When he can function as a female socially, legally, and sexually. And it might surprise you, it did me as I did more reading on this than I wanted to. Uh, that this actually gained some national attention uh, in 1952 here in the United States. Uh, there was a headline in the New York Daily News that read like this, XGI becomes blonde beauty, operations transform Bronx youth. 
And essentially, it told the story of a man who had served in the GI forces, the armed forces, who later came out and decided that he was a transsexual and wanted to be transformed into the opposite gender. Uh, The account goes like this. No true transsexual has ever been persuaded, bullied. uh, Benjamin stated this. Uh, No transsexual has ever been persuaded, bullied, drugged, analyzed, shamed, ridiculed, or electrically shocked into an acceptance of his or her physique. And so I ask myself in mercy or in common sense, if he cannot alter the conviction to fit the body, who will he not in certain circumstances alter the body to fit the conviction? So that was Benjamin's justification for performing this surgery, this reassignment surgery on that individual, the XGI. Now, with that as somewhat of a background, all of this found a Western ally in the distinct but two supporting and intertwining movements of the sexual revolution and radical feminism or second wave feminism that began in the 1960s or really came to fruition in the 1960s. Both of these were a very direct attack on marriage and on family. The sexual revolution was essentially a complete rejection of any traditional morals of sexuality as an exclusive activity that consummates and binds a marriage covenant between a man and a woman and a husband and a wife. It essentially argued for personal pleasure and fulfillment as the ultimate end of sexual experience. Uh, One made this comment on it. The upheaval of the sexual revolution taught that our bodies are our own and for us to enjoy in whatever way we want. In other words, not to be hindered in any way. Now, there's many aspects to this, and we've talked about it in the future, but here I would just make that point. That intertwined with another corresponding movement at that time, though distinct, but they blended into each other, or maybe you could say they were self-supporting, and that is of the radical feminism or second-wave feminism. And the basic tenet of radical feminism was the idea of the obliteration of any kind of gender distinction, any kind of meaningful distinction between male and female. And in fact, and again, we've looked at this in the past, there was within radical feminism an absolute hatred of the female body. They hated the, the, the aspects of femininity that related to childbirth and child rearing. And they hated particularly the fact that men could have sex without consequences and women had to bear children. And so they, they essentially hated that idea. They, they hated the menstrual cycle and so forth. And so they did everything that they could to eradicate those realities from the life. And that's where we, out of that came the pill, uh, abortion, and other things. Now, there are other cultural influences as well that uh, began to encourage and kind of moved these ideologies along. And again, we've, I keep saying this, but we've talked about these things in the past and just mentioning them here as reminders. But one is what is identified, these are complex things, but identified as postmodern philosophy, which related truth really to that which is contained within self. It is subjective, it's not objective. There is no absolute standard, absolute truth to which we conform to. Rather, we have truth as something that is very personal. It's experienced by the individual. And ultimately, that would end to the things outside of that individual having to conform to their own identity and their own reality. And so we see that in a variety of ways. But self and personal autonomy, it argues, are the surest source of truth. 
And in conjunction with the sexual revolution and its principles, it also encourages that every sexual impulse and desire is a legitimate expression and identifier of a person's true self and should be affirmed and explored. Explored. So therefore, with personhood being defined, and this Freud was a big influence here, as in terms of sexuality, therefore every aspect of that person's sexuality needs to be affirmed as legitimate, a true expression of their personhood, and therefore any deviance from that or any opposition to that is an attack not merely on an idea but the person themselves. That's where we get the language of violence and harm and so forth with opposing arguments and ideas. There's also something also noted as far as a general influence culturally. Sometimes it's discussed under, uh, in more theological terms, as contemporary Gnosticism. Other times under sort of philosophies that led to this. But essentially the idea is this, is that there creeped into sort of national thinking, this division between the body and the self, this sort of dualism. Now Gnosticism, one of the general ideas of that was that flesh is bad and, and spirit is good. There were these two sort of a, opposing realities. The way that's kind of come into our culture is that there's the body which is kind of the lower self and has biological realities but then there's this upper reality, this true self which is the true identity of an individual. One person caught it in this statement, kind of summarized this. The key to understanding all the controversial issues of our day is that the concept of the human being has likewise been fragmented into an upper and a lower story. Secular thought today assumes a body-person split, with the body defined as the fact realm by empirical science, that's the lower story, and the person defined in the values realms as the basis for rights, the upper story. This dualism has created a fractured, fragmented view of the human being in which the body is treated as separate from the authentic self. And so you can see how these ideas have crept in. So there is this idea that my body tells me one thing, but the true reality of who I am tells me another. And these are at conflict. So something has to change. Either I need to re-address how I'm thinking about reality and about myself, or I can change my physical body. You see the foundation that is laid. Now behind this are key concepts that make a distinction between, now it's common in our language or in our thinking and conversations, between biological sex and gender. Now historically there was no distinction. A person's gender was their biological sex. Their gender was male or female and of course that fit with who they were physically and anatomically. But in order to understand some of the the language, let me just give you a few of the highlights. Now, there's many more terms related to this. These are just some of the the basic ones. First of all, within this movement or ideology, biological sex is concerned with the mere physical aspects of what uh, that relate to uh, our anatomy, essentially. Uh, It really has three parts to it. One is chromosomal structure, so we know that XY means male and XX means female. And then it contains primary characteristics, and those are reproductive organs internally and external genitalia related to reproduction, male and female. And then there are secondary characteristics such as bone structure, muscle mass, height, even brain size, and those type of things. And all of those are included in biological sex. And then there's this other category known as gender. 
And gender is meant to refer to general characteristics or norms of any given culture that correspond to a person's biological sex. In other words, what are cultural norms of how a, somebody who is physically a male acts and who is physically a female acts? It includes such things as personal attitudes, beliefs, and expressions. Now, there are a variety of ways that this can be manifested. In other words, uh, the way that uh, a person's sex is expressed within a culture can look different in different cultures. Uh, that's not a big surprise. Uh, one example of that, which would be kind of an easy example, is if you go back in, far enough in history to lands across the sea, and men wore skirts, and they played bagpipes. Right? And that was very masculine. There was nothing wrong with that at all. I think uh, if you watch Braveheart, you know, they uh, dress differently. And yet these were very masculine men of war, men of courage, men of strength, and so forth. Uh, if you did that today and walked into Starbucks, a man with a skirt, people would look again. You know, it'd be at a double take. So the, the point simply being that the way that it's expressed in different cultures, that can change. That is recognized. There are certain norms and characteristics uh, that are different over time and over different regions and geography and so forth. Uh, one expressed it this way, uh, the manifestation of gender in, under this idea, is what people now call gender could more aptly be considered personality or mood. Many seem to also be mistaken gender identity with gender expression, which is much more varied. In other words, mistaking and making an equivocation between what one is in terms of their biology and how one expresses that within their given or particular culture. This moves into the idea then of gender identity. So there's gen biological sex, gender, and gender identity. And gender identity is essentially a person's self-perception as either male or female, masculine or feminine. And then there's, there's a seemingly endless list of other options. Uh, Non-binary, gender fluid, and just go down a list. It'd be too long to take our time to go through. There is another and a fourth uh, term or, or part of this ideology... Uh, that is gender dysphoria. Now, gender dysphoria is actually a psychological category, but it's a, really, it's a very real condition uh, that m some people experience. And it is described in this way. It's a, a psychological condition in which an individual has a persistent sense of identifying, quote, more with the opposite sex than their birth sex. Those with gender dysphoria have typically, uh, well, have typically had to go through a, a pass a, a rather tight set of criteria to be labeled with this. And it, and it really had to be consistent. It had to be deep. It had to be persistent. Uh, these kind of uh, characteristics had to attend their struggle in order to finally be given this label. In other words, it wasn't just haphazardly thrown around as it is today. We'll look at that down the road. And... Uh, lastly, there is the transgender. Now, transgender is a large concept that includes uh, anyone who identifies or expresses a gender that does not correspond with their biological sex. And there's a rather infinite number of degrees of this, it seems. We'll swing back around to some of these things uh, down the road. Now, what is important to recognize, however, in this and in the current dogma is this. Not, they are not saying, transgenderism isn't saying that a person feels like they're the opposite gender. They're not saying that. They're not saying a boy feels like they really should have been a girl and that therefore they should start acting that way. Or that a girl really feels like they should have been a boy and so then they can start acting that way. That's not what they're saying. 
and, and we'll see the implications of this uh, down the road, but what's being said is this, is that that biological boy is a girl. That that biological girl is a boy if they identify that way. Not that they feel that way, not that it's attributes that they want to put on, not that it's characteristics of expression, but they actually are essentially, ontologically, you could say in a sense, that other gender. And that really becomes a very, very significant issue. This confused ideology is dramatically revealed in a recorded event of one girl who wanted to be a boy. And so recording this transition and the taking on of a breast binder, which is a very big part of this movement, that when you have young girls who are obviously going through the process of puberty and developing breasts, but they feel like they want to identify as a boy or transition, breast binders is one of the common ways to begin. It's just what it sounds like. But to show you the way this works out in a confused ideology, one records this incident. Elliot, this is the person, it's a girl, who is recording her, her introduction into breast binding to begin presenting and living as a boy. So Elliot tries it on for our benefit, bearing rose-tattooed arms, struggling a little against the punishing elastic, emitting a string of expletives. Woo, this hurts, Elliot says, smiling proudly and turning sideways. Says, uh, smiling proudly. Turning sideways, Elliot shows off her flattened physique, a bulldozed version of a woman's profile. And she exclaims these words. Oh my God, oh, oh, I'm a boy. Wow. Elliot buries her face and her hands, apparently on the verge of happy tears. So now, in this ideology, she fully embraces by the mere fact of squeezing her breasts together so they can't be recognized that she actually is a boy. And that is, to her, a movement into freedom. This kind of bizarre sense of identity that, bring, that comes with transgender ideology uh, becomes in direct conflict with other letters in the LGBTQ plus kind of movement. And essentially it becomes a movement that eats itself, that, that starts destroying itself. One example of this, to show you just how bizarre and far out of reality these things can get is that transgenderism comes in particularly from male to female, those who want to supposedly transition from male to female, into conflict with lesbianism and radical feminism. Now what's essential to lesbianism, and for that matter homosexuality, and feminism is the reality of gender, that there actually is a woman and there actually is a man, and that these two things are distinct. And so there is a strong reaction and opposition of lesbianism to the transgender movement and particularly of radical feminists to that movement. And the argument is essentially this. One is that you can't merely change some physical attribute and all of a sudden claim participation in the whole history of womanhood. Moreover, you can't claim the essence and the experience of womanhood when you don't experience the other things that women experience. Menstruation, pregnancy, child-rearing, and so forth. Thirdly, the argument is that it's actually a perverted view and a male-centered view of femininity that you're transitioning over to. And so those are primary, primary arguments of that movement against transgenderism. And so there is much conflict. So when we see LGBTQ and those kind of things in the headlines, it's not a homogenous movement. It is a great conflict and discord within it itself. As a political movement, it presents itself that way, but it's not in reality. 
As a matter of fact, trans, those within transgenderism have a name uh, for these radical feminists who reject transgender ideology, and they're called TERFs. Uh, some of you have heard of that, transgender exclusive radical feminist, and it's uh, not said as a compliment. Well, what are some of the arguments then of this movement? That's just the general picture of it. Some of the arguments of this is they say, what are some of the proofs? What are some of the, the things that they use to justify this kind of uh, ideology? One is the reality of DSD or disorder of sex development, or also known as intersex, although this is debatable, but at least in a general sense, it was captured in an older term, a hermaphrodite. But really, some of the common language is DSD or intersex people. What is DSD or intersex? Uh, it is a real medical condition that some of you may be uh, familiar with, and it affects a small portion of the population. This condition is described in which an infant, quote, is born with genitals that are ambiguous or not fully formed due to, to genetic and hormonal abnormalities. As a result, doctors may not be sure what the newborn sex is. In other words, within that process of formation within the womb, the fetus, as it begins to develop, has an abnormality in its sexual presentation. So it can contain organs of both. There's, and there's, there's a whole spectrum here of how far this goes. Uh, it can contain um, a confusing physical condition where there's not a clear distinction of whether they're male or female. Now, this is then a, a huge argument for transgenderism. However, let me suggest there are at least four problems with this argument. One, this condition uh, still operates within the rubric or within the paradigm of binary sex, of male and female. Yes, there are confusions, but these confusions are only recognizable because there is a clear reality of male and female, and these realities in this particular individual become mixed. They become confused. Secondly, DSD or intersex is a real physical condition, unlike those who espouse transgenderism who are doing so from fully formed sexual bodies. There is no physical abnormality. It's completely a subjective experience, which is very different from those who have the condition of intersex or DSD. There is actually a physical cause. There is actually a, a physical problem in the way that they developed in the womb. One adds this, moreover, intersex is a biological condition while transgender activists insist that bi biology is irrelevant to gender identity. And by saying that is showing the, the confused logic is to say that the body doesn't matter, but then to say in this argument that the body does matter biologically. Number third, number three, intersex is, by its very definition, an abnormality, a tragic defect in the formation of a fetus. And it happens on to some, and it is something that requires a great deal of compassion, uh, but it is distinct from what is identified as transgenderism. And lastly, a problem with that argument is that many who are intersex actually do not advocate for genderlessness, for a genderless society. While not advocating uh, overall for a strictly binary distinction, there is a, a group called Intersex Society of North America. And it really is a society that formed to address various issues related to those who are born with intersex or DSD conditions. 
Uh, in one of their little articles on their website, they say this. At ISNA, we've learned that many intersex people are perfectly comfortable adopting either a male or female gender identity and are not seeking a genderless society or to label themselves as a member of a third gender class. And this article goes on to advocate the danger of sexual reassignment at too early an age with those with sexual conditions. One of the issues that happens in this condition is that when it's recognized early on, the physicians then advocate for uh, physical uh, uh, surgeries or whatever that, that bind that uh, child to one particular gender, to male or female. Uh, which can cause great psychological problems later in, in their life. And so what this group is advocating for is that you wait until adulthood, passing through puberty, having time to process that, and then uh, decide which gender that they would want to present as. Now, that's a very complicated issue. There's a variety, as I said, a spectrum in which that can work out into someone's life. Uh, but that is at least a general way that it's perceived. So one of the arguments is the reality of the intersex condition, but that is, is uh, hopefully, been at least introduced, a very weak argument, just from that point of view, from a scientific point of view. A second argument for transgenderism is suicide, and this is huge. This is huge. Internal struggles such as depression and suicide are statistically high for those within the transgender community. There are huge huge experiences of darkness and depression and other things uh, within that community. One common example cited is a tragic case of one by the name of David Reimer. David Reimer. Uh, just to give you the highlights of that, David Reimer is a, is a young boy who underwent a circumcision at seven months old, and the circumcision was botched, and he lost his male uh, genitals. Uh, the parents were distraught uh, over what to do, and so they sought out the help of a John Hopkins uh, psychologist and sex expert uh, who then decided to essentially experiment on this young boy and told his parents, uh, after he was castrated, to raise him as a little girl. And so they did. And following this advice, the parents then, seeking to raise him as a girl, found that he consistently gravitated toward characteristically male interest. He, wanted, he didn't want to wear dresses. He wanted pants. He didn't want to play with dolls. He wanted to play with guns and, and those type of things. He, he liked rough play. Well, by the age of 14, this uh, became so strong within David that his parents told him what happened to him as a child, and he decided to live as a boy, and he eventually underwent surgery that matched his physical uh, anatomy with that reality. He ended up getting married, but later committing suicide. Uh, it was so grievous to him, and he never actually got over the damage. And what is not included here is the therapy that he went over by this guy named Dr. Mooney was absolutely horrendous and perverted at the highest level. But nonetheless, his parents thought they were helping him, and they subjected him to it. Uh, this case is often cited by transgender advocates as proof that, innate, that there is an innate gender identity. Summarized, one wrote this. In other words, on this argument... In other words, they claim Raymer's case proves that one can have a subjective gender identity that differs from how the person's body appears. David Raymer was told he was a girl, but deep on the inside, he knew he was a boy. 
Likewise, transgender people assert a similar experience. They have been told that they are one gender and raised according to that gender, but deep on the inside they feel they are the opposite gender regardless of the body's appearance. Well, again, there are several problems with this logic. Let me name a few. First of all, there is a false parallel. One, David was actually born a male who underwent a tragic accident. He was actually born the gender. So whatever happened or subsequently to the surgeries and so forth, he was acting consistently with his birth sex, which is uh, not what is happening in transgenderism. Secondly, the identity confusion then that he went Uh, that he experienced and the deep pain that he experienced was from a radical therapy that tried to force him into a mold different than what he was actually than how he was actually born as a biological male it was essentially an attempt to for him to deny his maleness Again, this is very different within the transgender community who have perfectly complete and gendered bodies but experience psychological dissonance, not physical dissonance. In other words, they're perfectly male and they're perfectly female. The issue is not a physical reality or adverse therapy that went against their biological sex, which was the case with David Raymer. Now, there is another and a third argument then, and that is genetic causation. Now, the Of course, the details here are too much. Let me just summarize it. Uh, These arguments are based on various studies that relate the effect of hormones, particularly in prenatal developments of why the child is developing in the womb, particularly uh, related to uh, testosterone, uh, how much they had or lack of or or so forth, that that tend to create certain characteristics uh, in a child. Uh, with Again, without going into the details, there are a variety of inconsistencies, however, and vague conclusions in the studies, such as one major study that was cited that was actually done on a group of cadavers or dead people after they had been for years on hormone therapy. It, it, it uh, eliminates such data as crossover characteristics. In other words, those characteristics that they are identified as being uh, true or unique to transsexuals that are also uh, equally uh, present in heterosexuals and, and those kind of inconsistencies is what is meant. And so there's, there's really, there's no, there's no genetic test or there's no gene that's been discovered or any physical issue for causation. The arguments for physiological causes for transgenderism in the so-called third brain, and the third brain would be you have what is sometimes referred to as a female brain or as a male brain, a female brain, and the third brain would have sort of this mix of characteristics, uh, they say. Uh, At the very best, after long discussions on this, uh, there may be a correlation, but nothing even close to causation. Not even close, not even in the realm of causation. And even those issues of possible correlation are highly debatable and inconsistent. Those who argue for causation, however, want to promote a key idea within transgenderism, and that is biological determinism. And so the argument wants to go is, look, somebody is born this way, they can't help it, there's no way that they can change, they're stuck with it, and so therefore we should have compassion and address this conflict that they're experiencing. Of course, just as a footnote here before we get 
to the biblical perspective of this, that even if there were a genetic cause, the same as with homosexuality, or a genetic cause for anything, a genetic cause for rapists, a genetic cause for thieves, a genetic cause for murderers and those prone to violence, a genetic cause for those who have particular proneness to different kinds of enslavement or addictions or whatever, in the same case, it wouldn't matter. It wouldn't matter from a Christian perspective and, and really from a clear-headed uh, a clear-headed human perspective, those who have at least a measure of common grace to think logically about these things, because even if that were found, it wouldn't change the physical realities that this person has as an anatomical and biological male or female, and to try to change those basic and fundamental realities can only cause harm. With that... Uh, and we'll come back to that because that plays a huge issue in terms of legislation and law and education. Here, what is another part of this? There is a tremendous amount of malpractice, hypocrisy, and manipulation in the movement. And I want to emphasize before I even say some of these things that what I want to emphasize is this. That we're talking about the ideas when we talk about the evilness. The people caught up into this are victims. The people caught up in this deserve compassion, and we're going to come back to this, into the movement and the confusion. And we'll talk a little bit about that. What we would rail against are the ideas and those who are manipulating people for personal gain or other kind of objectives. But we have compassion on the people. We're not against people who identify with transgender or struggle. We are against the ideology and the ideas and the lies and the hypocrisy that promote uh, this kind of thing. So that's just a footnote. I'll mention that again later. What are some of the ways this malpractice and hypocrisy and manipulation are evidenced? Well, let me just give you a few. First of all, is there is a willful ignoring of opposing evidence and facts. There is a willful ignoring of opposing evidence and of facts. Let me give you just one. Uh, these are statistics related to puberty. And I quote, the American College of Pediatrics writes, according to the DSM-5, so that is the most updated uh, psychological manual that you know, identifies whatever is uh, identified as uh, mental illness and so forth in treatment. So the American College of Pediatrics writes, according to the DSM-5, as many as 98% of gender-confused boys and 88% of gender-confused girls eventually accept their biological sex after naturally passing through puberty. Did you hear that? 98%, this is the American Association of Pediatrics, according to the standard psychological manual, that says 98% of boys and 88% of girls after puberty end up identifying and not wanting to cross-identify with whatever their gender is. According to another study, when children who reported, and I'm still quoting you, According to another study, when children who reported transgender feelings were tracked without medical or surgical treatment at both Vanderbilt University and London's Portman Clinic, 70 to 80% of them spontaneously lost these feelings. That is irrefutable data. That's statistically true. And yet this kind of information is radically ignored and dismissed in the treatment of children which is probably one of the most grotesque victims of this ideology. In fact, cross-sex hormone therapy is as started as young as children eight years old. And some are recommended to clinics as young as three-year-olds. And some children's hospitals argue that sex confusion and transgender characteristics are known even from the womb. 
These are terrible, terrible crimes against children. It's terrible evil and child abuse done against the weakest of our society. And so knowing these facts, they yet uh, subject them to long-term and permanently damaging therapies such as hormone therapy and in some cases surgeries. And even young, barely pubescent girls to things such as mastectomies and so forth. Regarding consequences of hormone therapy, there's a willful ignorance of the, the, the effect of taking these, uh, whether children or adults, such as binding and mastectomies and GRS and so forth. And this is perpetuated by the media who only shows positive examples. Positive examples skewed through their own worldview and their manipulation of the actual facts. For example... Binding is often presented as just the wonderful first step into the experience of the opposite gender. Obviously, that would mean for females who want to supposedly transition transition into males. I gave you that one example earlier. Here are just some of the consequences of it, and I quote, It turns out that breast... Hyphen, uh, granular tissue, fatty tissue, blood vessels, lymph vessels, and lymph nodes, lobes, ducts, connective tissue, and ligaments are not really meant to be squashed flat all day long. Some consequences of that are fractured or bruised ribs, punctured or collapsed lungs, shortness of breath, back pain, and deformation of the breast tissue or side effects. But you'll never hear that. All you hear in the media is how wonderful this is, and you get those exclamations of that one person identifying as Elliot, as, look, wow, now I'm a man. It's sad. Regarding hormone therapy, among other things, and another notes, testosterone leaves a woman's voice forever altered and gives her permanent facial hair even after she has stopped taking it. In females who take testosterone, obviously those who want to transition into male beyond many other physical characteristics, Uh, It can affect their ability to have uh, children and a variety of other consequences. So they willfully ignore contrary evidence that is plain and that is uh, accessible. They willfully ignore the increase of desisters and detransitioners. Now, desisters are those who wanted to identify as the opposite gender. Uh, They didn't undergo any kind of physical surgery. They maybe took hormone therapy or something along those lines. Uh, But then later decide that they no longer wanted to go that route and turn back and live according to their uh, biological sex. Those things are ignored. Those statistics are completely dismissed. Detransitioners are those who underwent some form of surgery and want to revert back to the physical characteristics of their natal sex, which, by the way, is not even always possible. And even if there is a reversion back, such as maybe a young girl who had a mastectomy, the breasts that are replaced with are not the same as what would have been natural. There's permanent damage. There's a permanent loss. Those things are ignored. Of course, even studies of those who persist in their new identity fail to take into consideration a variety of factors such as those things that would hinder someone, even who's doubting of going back to their biological sex. Some of the factors that are ignored are their total immersion into the ideology, underlying issues that led to the dysphoria in the first place, and the sense of inevitability from measures already taken. In other words, there's the idea of I'm already here, I can't do anything about it. And so forth. And again, as I already noted, this ideology is taking hold of even in children's hospitals and those who should be doing good and protecting the health of children. 
And yet the consequences are permanent or potentially permanent uh, things that relate to social, emotional, and physiological damage. Let me move on. One of the great running uh, applications of this kind of ideology is what is known as affirmative therapy. Affirmative therapy. And this is huge. Uh, and affirmative therapy is essentially this. They say the only way to address those who give any kind of uh, in, in, uh, inclination towards uh, the other gender than their biological sex are to be absolutely affirmed. In other words, the only treatment that can be given is positive encouragement, and it must be given to every self-diagnosis. Well, that is incredibly huge and has massive implications and yet sadly has been embraced uh, by even our highest politicians and many within the medical community. And in that community, even the medical community credits personal feelings of underage children as ultimately determinative of their medical treatment. No evaluation, no questions, no criteria, merely the statement that I feel like I want to be the, under gen the other gender. And then from that, a course of either hormonal therapy or other therapies are introduced. The therapeutic community insists that transgender identity must be treated not as a perception, again, but as a reality. So again, what's behind it, and I quote, Affirmative therapy compels therapists to endorse a falsehood. Not that a teenage girl feels more comfortable presenting as a boy, but that she actually is a boy. And this care, just to tell you, is adopted by, and I will list, and I quote, the American Medical Association, the American College of Physicians, the American Academy of Pediatrics, the American Psychological Association, the Pediatric and Endocrine Society, have all endorsed gender-affirming care as the standard for treating patients who self-identify as transgender or self-diagnose as gender dysphoric. In other words, if you're a 16-year-old girl and you decide that you want to take hormone therapy or begin a transition, there's no need for parental consent. There's no need for any strict evaluation. It's merely driving to a clinic that will administer those drugs, tell them how you feel, and then you get whatever prescription that you desire. It's terrible. This care is based on several principles, and I have taken these from an author. One is that adolescents know who they are is that adolescents know who they are, even prepubescent children. That an eight-year-old has the sexual awareness of even what sexuality is or their own personal identity to make the kind of decisions that would be unchallenged and result in permanent life-altering physical consequences. It simply says it. We'll get, in just a minute, I'll mention how this is actually written into educational policy and school policy, particularly in California and others. One, another its principle is that social transition and affirmation is a no-lose proposition. And again, that's hiding the consequences, hormone therapy, binding, and so forth. Not to mention the social and psychological consequences down the road of those who no longer want to identify as the opposite gender. A third principle, so it's adolescents know who they are, social transition and affirmation is a no-lose proposition, and if you don't affirm your child, your child may kill themselves. That's huge. It's an incredible source of manipulation. 
And lastly, a principle is that gender identity is immutable. In other words, unchangeable. You can't convert a child out of transgender identity. Of course, ignoring just at the base level uh, before any deeper argument of those who actually do change. 98% of males and 88% of females who, after they go through puberty. That alone, the idea that it's some genetic determinism or biological determinism or unalterable reality of a physical condition is turned on its head. But those are the kind of arguments that are ignored, or if you bring them up, you are ostracized and attacked. This manipulation, along with education in the medical community, is proliferated on the Internet, which is a key tool of those within the transgender movement. The Internet and social media which gives specific language, particularly to young and impressionable girls. Transgender ideology preys upon the normal confusions, disappointments, and struggles of adolescence and development into adulthood. And, of course, there is a huge component of peer pressure, something I'll mention in a bit. But online transgender promoters use such phrases as, and again, I borrow these, uh, if you think you might be trans, you probably are. And they identify that feeling as this. Listen to the way that it's described. Feeling different, not really fitting in, not feeling feminine or masculine enough or ever feeling uncomfortable with your body. Hello to every adolescent girl. Do you, do you see? The preying on normal struggles and feelings automatically. And by the way, just as a footnote, it's eliminated even the idea of lesbianism because if there's any, any kind of uh, presenting reality for a child, then they automatically it's put into the transgender category. Another is trying out trans binders are a great way to start. Or testosterone, or T as it's sometimes called, is amazing. It just may solve all of your problems. Or another is if your parents loved you, they would support your trans identity. Now this opens up a whole massive other area. Love is defined as total acceptance. Again, remember affirmation, uh, affirmative therapy. Uh, love is defined as total acceptance of a person's trans feelings in transition. Anything less than complete acceptance and encouragement and support is a form of hate and abuse and oppression. And they are enemies then of that child and they need to be eradicated from your life. This is a common theme. If your parents don't uh, support you, then they need to be resisted. You need to get out of the house. You need to leave them and you need to come into this new community of trans identity. And this kind of principle is laid down even, again, in the educational system. We'll come back to something else later, but let me note this. This is from a curriculum taught to K6, uh, K through 6 graders. You are who you say you are because you, capital letters, know best. Commenting on that, parents, on the summarizing it, parents must listen to their children, the book insists, and what it really seems to mean is that parents must agree with them. In other words, if you are in K through 6 and identify as the other gender, your parents say that no, you're not, and they try to uh, teach you to live consistent with who you are, then the parents don't understand, and they actually become in opposition to you, and they need to be rejected. These are the kind of things that we see in political arguments, uh, again, which I'll mention in just a bit. As I noted, the internet and social media have a massive, massive influence on what is a social phenomenon, which is, again, ignored and escapes from the normal rigor of evaluation, even by the psychological community, psychologist community, and so forth. 
And that is what's known as the rapid onset of gender dysphoria. Listen to some of these statistics. And I'm just highlighting much, much more could be said. But here's one says, quote, Between 2016 and 2017, the number of gender surgeries for natal females, that is essentially a born female, uh, in the U.S. quadrupled, with biological women suddenly accounting for 70% of all gender surgeries. In 2018, the U.K. reported, a, listen to this, a 4,400% rise over the previous decade in teenage girls seeking gender treatments. And yet, that kind of phenomenon, which usually would get national headlines, is ignored. In fact, it's celebrated. No examination on why would that be? What are underlying causes? What are the consequences of this kind of movement and so forth? What are the social conditions that might be promoting it? Normal, normal questions of research are absolutely ignored. There's also a particular demographic that these statistics usually come from, but again, that is ignored. So, these are some of the general conditions. One other aspect of this I want to mention, because it's extremely seductive, is the wide welcome of the trans community as the people who will be your new family. And really, in some sense, as I was reading about these various things, is the thought that came into my mind was how it's a perversion of the church and of the body of Christ. Where are Christians who are rejected by the world but have the family of God in which they're accepted. And essentially, a trans community becomes that, but with some vicious additions. So what happens is if you give any indication of being a part of the trans community, you are immediately flooded on the internet and social media with only positive encouragement. You're so brave. You're so courageous. You go and continue with this. There is nothing negative that is ever said. No questioning again, no evaluation, no criteria that somebody would have to go through, no encouragement to live, to have any other idea, any opposing argument, whatever. It is absolute, 100% only affirmation. Anything else is rejected. And so those who are very often struggling with these things, not because of any kind of sexual identity, but normal social anxieties such as fitting in with peer groups, difficult home situations, depression, and so forth, uh, those factors are simply ignored. And yet, that is what draws many into this new community. Another, as I already noted, but is a, a common Manipulation on the internet is, again, if you're not supported in your trans identity, you will probably kill yourself. There is open and even promoted deception of parents and doctors because it's justified uh, because of the means. So the ends justifies the means, getting what you want. And so forth. One notes this, in the internet age, activists and allies are not content at seeking justice. They seek to punish heretical thought. They want your head on a stick for you to die in a fire or preferably both. So in other words, it's only positive. And if anybody steps outside or gives any contrary argument, they are skewered, they are attacked viciously. And nobody is immune from this. I'm just going to mention this broadly. There's uh, One is that even leading scholars who promote and have made a name for themselves in writing significant and influential books promoting actual the reality of transsexualism, but with a conservative nature. In other words, saying there needs to be rigorous criteria before we just identify somebody as that. But they would say that there are cases. Now, we wouldn't agree with that, but nonetheless, just to say there are conservatives within that movement who would be highly suspicious of the immediacy of acknowledging someone as the opposite gender. 
One person who wrote a significant and celebrated and awarded paper that was used and quoted and cited by many other within the field all of a sudden was picked up by transgender activists merely because they said that there should be a waiting period. A watch and wait was the kind of therapy saying let's not immediately rush to it but let's consider other factors. He was immediately skewered. His pu- he, he was demanded to write an apology. He was uh, fired from his job. Publication was taken off of where it was cited and he was made an outcast and attacked online. What did he say? We should wait and consider other options. But that was unacceptable. And there are many examples of that. Previous transgender victims, those who fall into desisters or detransitioners, if there's any deviance from the ideology, one young girl, again, which I'll just mention, described it very accurately as a cult. If you, that welcoming community, this is the vicious part that I mentioned earlier, is, welcomes you as long as you have complete adherence to their ideology and their tenets and their standards. As soon as you step outside of that, they turn on you, you are rejected and viciously attacked, which is also ignored as a cause for some of the issues of suicide uh, among those in that community and leave it. But again, those kind of facts are just ignored. Well, just very briefly, what are the threats of danger of transgenderism? Well, as noted already, just as I just mentioned, the strategy of the trans community or ideology is to demolish anything that's determined to be in any way in opposition to the absolute, unquestioned, unchallenged, and fully embraced LGBTQ ideology. Again, we already mentioned some of the tactics that they use. Uh, An example of this, an example of this kind of... uh, this kind of thinking, and this is taken from one author. Uh, let me just add this statement. Not only of this kind of thinking, but particularly, and there is a particular thread also that runs through this, and that is of those who oppose any kind of religious opposition. Let me just read this one quote, and then I'll make a comment. Under the guise of tough love, I'm quoting, other families isolate their children from LGBT peers, remove internet access, control their friendships, and force them to dress in clothing that matches the gender they were assigned at birth. Parents, this person says, might even drag them to church where they hear about the sins of cross-gender expression or they pray over them asking God to exercise the devil from their child to overcome their confusion. They may even take them to non-mainstream counselors who lay it on thick, telling the children that they will go to hell if they keep up this lifestyle. And that is representative of the kind of arguments within the movement. Not only does this misrepresent and mischaracterize the gospel and Christian ministry and put it into a negative light, it becomes then a weapon to against any kind of religious opposition. This is, just as a little footnote here, behind the arguments that are at a very political and legislative level that argue and say that religion cannot hide behind the covering of free speech or freedom of religion. In other words, that doesn't exist. It is an excuse for hate and oppression. That's happening in our country. I mean, that's what's happening here. I'll give you just a couple of examples of that. Uh, One... uh, presciently noticed this, noted this, there is a genuine concern that at some point in the future, transgender activists may attempt to force, the, to use the force of law to determine how parents will care for gender dysphoric children. Transgender activist Nicholas Tyke comments, parents are, so he's a supporter of transgenderism, 
Uh, Parents are, by their nature as adults with decision-making power, some of the largest obstacles that stand in the way of transgender kids being able to be their true selves. Now, if you think that's just some radical person uh, spouting out, let me give you a few examples to show it's not. Some ways that this ideology is fitting into our general culture, as I noted before, educational policy and legislation related to child abuse. This is happening now. The education system is explicitly and tenaciously in opposition to parental authority, which they see as a source of misinformation, ignorance, and or hate. This situation calls for the school to be the place of enlightenment, safety, truth, and affirmation. Let me give you an example. One notes commenting on this that it encourages the subtle formation of two camps, us and them, the imaginary divide between those who fit perfectly into cartoonish gender stereotypes and those who don't. The dauntless young who welcome different gender identities and sexual orientations versus their phobic elders who don't. So the California Board of Education in their official documents defines spiritual abuse as, quote, using spiritual beliefs to justify abuse by forcing others to adhere to rigid gender rules. That's written in the California education policy. And that is to be rejected. That is why when a child comes to the school, the school feels no obligation to parent them back. They argue in other places that they're sending them back to unsafe environments because the parents who are ignorant and only produce fear and use religious manipulation want to tell the children that their trans identity or feelings are not legitimate. So that's there. One transgender activist who helps influence this kind of thinking, David Edwards, quote, purposely mis- says, purposely misgendering a transgender person is an act of violence. To continue to do that to your child is not only insensitive, but also rigid. This is behind the thinking of such bills as Bill 77 in Ontario, Canada, which is uh, titled the Affirming Sexual Orientation and Gender Identity Act, which one notes explicitly prohibits any treatment that attempts to change a minor's gender identity and delist any such treatment for adults from being covered by the province's health insurance plan. Currently in our state, in the state of Virginia, Democratic Virginia delegate Elizabeth Guzman is promoting legislation to include and or to expand the idea of child abuse to parents who don't affirm gender, the gender identity of their child. So in other words, and this has actually already come to the test and is being uh, argued for in Virginia legislation. So if a parent has a child who is prepubescent and they don't affirm them coming home and saying, hey, mommy, I think I'm a boy or I'm a girl, then those parents, if they persist in that, will be punishable by law. It will be a crime of fundamental abuse and will go to jail. It's already there. Now, what is, and I want to end with this, of course. How are we, there's, of course, much more that could be said. But how are we to view this? What is the biblical perspective on all of this? Well, first of all, I want to emphasize before I just make a couple of very brief points. One is that we as the church fight ideologies and ideas, not people. Our, our, our objective is to rescue people who are caught in a system of enslavement and damage to them. Not to condemn them. Uh, but rather to tell them of the consequences before God and that there is rescue and hope. But I want to say this, first of all, that this is a spiritual battle. This is primarily and first of all a spiritual battle. We are well familiar with this, but in Ephesians, Paul reminds us that 
that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. And therefore, as he told to the Corinthian church, we are to take every thought captive, everything raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are to bring it into obedience to Christ. We must remember that we fight this battle because of love for God and love for neighbor, for the glory of God and the goodness of his creation, and for the love of neighbor caught up in the lies of the evil one. Jesus reminded us, referring to Satan, the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they might have life and that they might have it abundantly. And so we need to have compassion on those who have the deep struggles of our culture and of a fallen nature, but have no resources of the Spirit, no truth, no Christ to rescue them from the soul-destroying deceptions of the world and the eternal consequences of rejecting Christ. They're in a pitiful condition, and we need to bring them hope while not compromising on the truth. The premise and the worldview of transgenderism, particularly, although also of the homosexual movement, LGBTU, denies the doctrine of creation and of sin. It is the result, beloved, and we'll talk about this a little bit next week, of a secular culture and society that has no mooring in the idea of transcendence, objective truth, and of creation, and of creation order, and immutable realities of our identity as humans and what it means to be human, particularly as those created in the image of God. So the church's response in this secular culture must be to speak truth compassionately that cares about people made in the image of God. The church also then should be the one place that a person feels the most able to share his or her struggle and who will compassionately walk aside them while upholding God's standard and God's truth. One said this, So a transgender person ought to feel more loved and safe visiting a Bible-believing church than any other place in the world. A gender dysphoric person should feel safer speaking about their identity and struggles in church than anywhere else because they are loved in the church. That's the kind of community that Christians should be. And we have then the only authoritative explanation of reality. Scripture as the church. What is our message? Well, it's a simple message that God created us in his image, male and female, that he created them. He created them male and female as an expression of his goodness and their flourishing and their joy. That this creation of male and female was endowed with particular characteristics and roles and relationships both to one another and to the world out of which God had designed them to subdue the earth and to multiply on it and to subdue it for flourishing again and for joy and for good. And that the sober, honest reality is that sin has distorted and corrupted God's good creation. The emotional turmoil turmoil that some of those experience in this is a very real turmoil. It's a very real anxiety. It's a very real pain. It's a very real confusion that we would not want to ignore, but we can shine light on it and say there's a reason for that. But we also say that there's hope. It's because of sin is the reason. It has distorted the good things that God has made. Because there is a real devil who has tempted you and seduced you into breathing something that will only kill and destroy and not give you life. And so then we have the only message of biblical hope in Christ. And that hope is one that in Christ there is new life. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, you are a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. 
Out of this life flows faith and repentance in which there is a trust in him who bore our sins in his body that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. There's also this sober reality that we have that, look, those who are even in Christ, it doesn't mean that it'll eradicate all of the conflict that you feel. In fact, it might even make it worse in some cases because the acuteness of the dissonance between what's felt and what God's design is felt more and more. And that's, Christians feel that in general. Christians struggle internally in battle more than they did as non-believers because now all of a sudden they're awakened to holiness and the reality of unholiness in their life. And it's no different with transgenderism or the sexually immoral or go down the list of sins. There is a struggling, there is a battling that believers feel and those who are in Christ. And it's a real battle, but it's based on a real and a solid hope and certainty of forgiveness and reconciliation with God and the promise that one day it will be over. And so what is the greatest I could add to that that by this message, the church gives the only real dignity to humanity as made in the image of God, that you are a whole person. You are not a divided person. You are not a confused person. You are a whole person, body and spirit. Those things were never meant to be divided. That whole person is a body and spirit. You are one. And God can begin to restore that reality in each individual. But there is one ultimate hope, too, that we offer and that is that for those who are in Christ, there is the resurrection. There is the resurrection. Whatever conflict, whatever struggle, whatever depression, whatever things that are the burden to those particularly in this community, there is the hope that one day, Philippians 3.21, he will transform the body of our humble estate into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has to subject everything to himself. There is the promise of 1 Corinthians that this body is sown a perishable body, it is raised an imperishable body. It is sown as dishonored, it is raised in power, it is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. You think of those maybe who come to the realization after they've already mutilated parts of themselves physically, after they've consigned themselves for the rest of their earthly life to a condition that they do not feel comfortable with and no longer identify with. Those who have long-standing struggles between who they are physically and how they feel on the inside, that's a tremendous hope. That's a tremendous hope. Hold on. There is an end. One day you will be a whole person. That conflict will end. One day whatever damage you've done to your body will be completely removed and restored and you will be glorious in the presence of God forever and ever and ever in absolute joy. That one day, the promise is, the struggle will be over. It will be over. And I end with this verse, Romans 8.22. The creation itself will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves, groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of the body. In other words, we have a message of hope, a message of forgiveness, a message of being a complete and a whole person restored in the presence of our Creator with joy and worship and gladness forever and ever and ever. Let me pray. Father, thank you for this hope that we have. And we know for those who are caught up in the ideologies in the world and the many ways that they manifest themselves 
Lord, we have a message of hope. That message of hope may be hated, but for those who are the called, it will be the message that brings them into the gateway of glory and forgiveness and meaning and a lack of the confusion, not the struggle, but at least purpose and a way to think through the things that they feel and to look, think not only think through what they experience here, but to look forward to that great and awesome reality that we all look forward to, and that is to be shed from the bodies that contain the principle of sin and to know in the full expression of our resurrected bodies the worship and the joy, the obedience, the praise, the delight, the love that you have promised to all of those who are in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and place their trust in him. Lord, may we be a church It's so easy to condemn. It's so easy to reject and to separate ourselves, but we are a people called to minister, to love, to care for, and to walk alongside those caught up in the entrapments of sin. May we be a people marked by that, not by condemnation alone, not by rejection, but by compassion, genuine care, and offering each person made in your image the dignity that that image affords. Help us to do these things, O Lord, because we love our Savior. And we pray these things in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen.